0: Thank you, Lord God, so much for including us in the organism of the body of Christ. Thank you for the metaphors that explain um, the church to us, the body, uh, the stones of the temple of God, uh, all those beautiful metaphors that, that teach us, Lord, how to think about your church. We are reminded that we are owned, that we are slaves of Christ, we are reminded that we are um, those that come under the the lordship of the head of the church, and so Lord, we pray that we would endeavor to learn of the body of christ not um not to form proud theological opinions but so that we could effectively function in her, to be uh, the type of church members, Lord, that would be pleasing to you and while the theology is extremely interesting, Lord, if it does not translate into worship and into behavior and into uh, unity in the church, then it has really availed us uh, nothing. And so I pray, Lord, that, that the effect of what we learned this morning would be to love the church um, because Christ loves the church and to be those that love one another as, uh, as members of the church, not just loving an organization, but loving the members. And I pray that would be the impact on our time this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Okay. That is where we left off. So we talked about the future of the church. After the coming of Christ, those who comprise Christ's church will have positions of authority over the nations, which is part of Christ's reward for faithful service. Um, The question may come up, uh, will that group of people, I'm defining the church as um, all believers from Pentecost, day of Pentecost through the rapture, will that group of people of which we are a part still be called the church? I don't know and I tend to doubt it. Um, There there is all throughout all throughout history there are the people of God called by different names and and um, in different groupings. There's the there are the 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 group before Abraham all of the faithful from Adam on. Um, There are the Israelites. Um, Abraham was not an Israelite. He was a Chaldean but he became an Israelite so to speak. It was a new nation. Um, So as we get into history, the future of the church, uh, I think there will be special rewards for the church. I think the New Testament is clear on that in five different places. Um, but uh, so will we still be called the church? I don't know. I tend to doubt it. I think that that might be more of a, might be more of a, a memory uh, than it will be a, an immediate uh, title. But regardless of what we're called, uh, we go from persecution to authority. And that's a that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. So, what is the nature of the church? And we'll look at some of the ways the New Testament describes sorry wrong way uh, describes the church. We're described as the people of God. The church belongs to God. Um, Romans nine speaks of this. Second Corinthians 6, 16, 1 Peter two nine and ten. Uh, all three of those passages, by the way, are very, they're very Israelite in nature. They're very Jewish in nature. Um, Israel previously was called the people of God. Currently, the church is called the people of God. Um, you could not say that national Israel is the people of God. That is not the case anymore. Um, I believe it will be the case again, but again, uh, down the road, I think those labels are going to become less and less useful uh, you're part of the people of God who happens to be born in California or part of the people of God that happens to be descended from the tribe of Judah. And I think those will be uh, a little bit more amalgamated in the future. Um, so we are the people of God now, but uh, Israel still enjoys the position of God's people as a nation. So some implications to this is that we are owned by God. People of God, uh, that's what's called a genitive. It can be a subjective or an objective genitive. Um, In this case, the people of God means people owned by God. Um, Not people just associated with him, but people owned by God. We are are his. Uh, We're cared for. We're protected by God. The good thing about being owned by God is that he looks out for what he owns. Um, That's always been the case. And then holiness is expected of God's people. That's, uh, this, that's part of the being the family of of God as well, and I don't have that listed up here, but I think that would be a, an accurate designation as well, the family of God. Then you have the body of Christ. Um, that designation is unique to Paul. That's that he owns that, uh, so to speak. Obviously under the inspiration of the Holy <coughs> Spirit, but that's so common to us. I mean, we we just interchangeably say, "Are you are you a member of the body?" Are you a member of the church? And I, I don't even think about it anymore. And I, I think it's a beautiful illustration, um, a metaphor that's so very useful to us. And I've listed some scriptures up there that, uh, in which he, he uses that. The implications are that Christ is the head of the church. And so he has dominion. He has lordship. Um, <clears throat> we, are to, we are to look to Christ. Uh, if, if he said um, that in the church, that you are to you are to cast out the one who claims to be a brother and yet continues to practice A B C and D uh, to, continues to practice sexual sexual immorality homosexuality uh, things like that uh, then we do that uh, we don't adjust we we don't uh, cater um, and this is where I you know I went off on this last week this is where the the uh, parachurch organizations uh, go to town or they get they, they get off the rails. Because they're not the church. And so they have more of a tendency to pander to society. Um, there is an unnamed Christian school in this, in this town that has decreed that their Bible teachers will no longer talk about homosexuality. Um, that We're not going to address that part of the Bible. <clears throat> but the Bible addresses that. So, so what, would, what would they say? Well, we're not the church. Fair enough. I understand that. Um, but but uh, the church is to be subordinate to the head. And we're subordinate to him by searching the scriptures. Um, So that's why it baffles me when uh, leadership groups in various churches, whatever you want to call them, elders, uh, deacons in Baptist churches, uh, board members in other denominations, it it baffles me when they'll have six- and seven-hour-long leadership meetings trying to make three decisions and never open their Bible. Like, you could have gone home way earlier. And just open the Bible and understand what Scripture says um, it, to to a really, really detailed degree. So we're to be subordinate to Christ. Um, Christ also nourishes the church. We should expect that the body is nourished by the head. Um, the head is where the food goes in um, and so forth. We could take that metaphor as far as you want to, but we should expect to be nourished. And so when... When you're in a church situation and you're not feeling nourished, uh, you only have two choices. It's the fault of the body or it's the fault of the head. It's not the fault of the head, so it must be the fault of the body. So the body is ill. It's not, it's not functioning properly. Um, you, should, you should feel nourished. I, I, ask, I ask the same two questions to every guest at Grace that I get to meet, especially at our guest coffees. I ask him, did you feel fed by the word of God and did you feel loved by the people of God? Two questions I always ask them. Once in a while, somebody will say no. Um, when they say I didn't feel fed, it's usually because they didn't agree with me. Okay? Um, and if they didn't feel loved, it's usually because they, they hid themselves in the corner. So I, I'm, I'm proud of the work that you all do in loving people. But we should feel nourished. You should expect to wake up on Sunday morning excited about the meal you're about to receive. I think that's reasonable. Um, we should feel that because we're the body and we need nourishment. Now, this, uh, this stresses unity and interconnectedness. There is a sense in which the, the Christian faith is not just an individual matter. We're connected to one another, and so unity is something worth striving for. It's, it's something worth um, going after. We're to work at unity. And then there's the implication that all ethnic and social barriers have been removed. I, I've mentioned this before, but uh, people who go who have titles out in the world, I understand that, and there's good reasons for that. But we don't need those here. We don't need those here. Um, uh, people sometimes jokingly now, there's one guy in this room who's allowed to do this. That's that's uh, that that is uh, Dave. But so they'll say, uh, Doctor Swartz, I, I'm, I have I have a lot of education, but I don't need to be called that. Because I never saw the Apostle Paul saying, um, uh, I would like to be called Apostle. I'm fine if you guys just call me Steve, to be honest with you. I, I'm, I appreciate the respect, but we're all, we just all function in the body with our little parts. I happen to be the upfront part. It's no more or no less important. And so are all those barriers are gone. Um, I, I love being in small group Bible studies. It's one of my favorite things, and I love seeing the the doctor seated next to the lawnmower guy and that in Christ we're all the same I love that I love the fact that that in our church now finally and it took some time that that we're seeing some ethnic diversity and I don't say that because the world wants us to do that I say that because that's how the church is and how it ought to be how we ought to reflect that Um, I don't believe in white churches I also don't believe in black churches I don't believe in any church that is ethnically derived unless there's a language barrier. Then you have to do that, and we understand that. But, but we don't start churches based on ethnicity. That's not the church. Uh, that just doesn't make sense with this metaphor of the body. So as you're, as you're praying about and, and, and trying to love the church, I, I think this is the most useful metaphor to, to continually think about. But then we have the people of God as the temple of God, the temple of God, and this is very interesting. I'm going to talk about this some uh, this evening. <clears throat> uh, how has God, how has God dwelt with His people throughout history? Well, first of all, it was through uh, an unmediated access in the Garden of Eden. That was gone pretty quick. Um, after that, we moved to a to a tabernacle and a temple system um, in the New Testament, uh, in the Gospels. Jesus is among us, and so the presence of God is here in Christ. Um, But now we are the temple of God. Any, any, uh, anyone want to hazard a guess as to why we are the temple of God now? Holy Spirit. Spirit. Oh, you guys are good. Uh, Don't get too excited though, because I'm preaching on the Holy Spirit this morning. So don't don't think about it too much. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. There we go. And I'm going to talk all about Pentecostals, Ed. So, (laughs) Um, so we are the temple. Now, don't get too uh, caught up in this. I, I would urge you to uh, look, especially in the 1 Corinthians passages. Generally speaking, how do we apply this um, by default? Well, my body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, a second piece of apple pie is sinful before the Lord. Right? And that's kind of, well, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't do that. Most of the context of the church being the temple of the Holy Spirit is in a corporate context that, that uh, the, the verbs you and us, they're, they're plural. So we want to make sure to understand that um, for me to preach, it, it would be correct, but not as accurate for me to preach. Um, you're the temple of the Holy spirit and you're the temple of the Holy spirit and you're the temple of the Holy spirit. That that's accurate. But more often than not, Paul is saying, we are the temple of the Holy spirit. That, that's a whole different stress, that's the unity, that's togetherness, that's our work together, yes, Debbie is it both then? Are you it's both? absolutely both, absolutely both, but the emphasis in the New Testament is on the corporate nature of the of the body of Christ as the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are um, the priesthood of God, first Peter two nine what, what is what does a priest do? A priest introduces people to God, a priest is a mediator. Um, For for people to God We're not a mediator in the sense that Christ Is a mediator but we are to bring the truth Of the gospel to the lost Um, You know the old saying is true That you may be the only Bible that some People ever read you may be The only Jesus that some people ever meet And so we are that we do have That priesthood function um, The priesthood of the believers Um, That's why Once in a while uh, somebody comes to Grace and this just happened a couple of weeks ago um a precious lady came and asked me if i would go outside with her and i said it's really hot I, re- I need a good reason and she said i want i just bought a car i want you to bless it and i was like i'm not in the blessing business because i'm not a priest right uh we're all the priests of christ and this said you know i'll pray that you're safe as you drive but i'm not going to bless your car because it's going to be destroyed in the great tribulation anyway uh, well, these days it's going to fall apart in five years anyway. So why would I bless something I know is going to die? So we are all the priesthood. We're all the priesthood. This is why, this is what, and this, this is so beautiful. Ecclesiology, it all fits. This is why Ephesians 4 says that the, that the job of the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers is to equip the saints for the work of service. Not to do the work of the service, not to do everything. I'm not a hired gun to do the ministry. I'm, I am here to, uh, to proclaim Christ and to prepare you to do the ministry in your sphere of influence because we're all of the priesthood. We're called saints, the holy ones, over a hundred times in the New Testament. Those who are set apart by God and Christ. That is, a, that is one of our favorite ways to refer to the church. Um, the saints of God, the, the set-apart ones. Um, and you can even see in English, this is related to the word sanctified. Um, it, it literally, in in the salvation sense, you have been sanctified. Um, so when the Catholic Church says, well, we've sainted so-and-so, he wrote, well, hey, I'm one. You know, uh, I, I've been one since the day I, I was saved. Well, have you performed two miracles? Uh, have you done this and that? Sorry, uh, the miracle, only, the only miracle that got performed in my life was that Christ saved me, and that was a big miracle. So... So we're all saints, so that is a a very appropriate title. It doesn't mean you're perfect, it just means you're holy. Um, You've been set apart, you've been reserved. We are called, and this is one of my personal favorite terms, believers, um, the faithful. And by the way, uh, in the New Testament, those who are not faithful are often called unbelievers. They're called uh, those who don't believe. We're disciples, we're learners, uh, literally a learner who follows the teaching of Christ. Uh, <clears throat> there, there has been—I don't know if it's that prevalent anymore—but there has been um, in recent decades kind of a, a, a big push to say this is especially when the Lordship Salvation debate was was going uh, pretty strong. A big push to say that there that that all people who are saved are Christians, and some of them are disciples. That there's the the really really. Spiritual people, and then those who are just trying to struggle through life and muddle through life—that's just a—that's just a disguised version of a second work of grace or a, a higher level of Christianity. We're all disciples. If you're not a Christian, you're not a disciple. If you're not a disciple, you're not a Christian. Um, you are a learner. You have a love to learn. You have a love for the Word of God. Um, when when somebody uh, when somebody says, "I just." I, don't, I, I can't handle your preaching. I don't, I don't mean in a, in a stylistic sense, but I just can't handle I don't. It's too much. I just don't want all that. I generally default to questioning their salvation because the, the Christian says, oh, I, I'm feasting, I'm eating, and yeah, there's some flowing out my mouth and I'm not getting all of it. But, but the Christian doesn't say, I, just, I don't want this. I need something that's lighter. I need something that's less heavy and less weighty. Uh, we we thrive on on the the heaviness of the word of God because we're disciples. We love to learn. Why do you keep torturing yourself going to going to church Sunday morning, Sunday night? I mean, there there are professing Christians you can't get in church once a month, but you're going twice a day, or twice in a week. Why do we do that? Because we love to learn, um, and that's that, that's the hallmark of the church. We're disciples, and then of course, finally, we're called Christians. This wasn't uh, this wasn't Our name for a while, uh, all the way until uh, Antioch, Acts chapter 11, and we're just called Christians two more times. Uh, Literally in Greek, it means little Christs. So there's kind of some pressure there, isn't there? Um, So we are followers of Christ. So uh, what a wonderful set of uh, pictures there. The people of God, the body of Christ, the temple, the priesthood, saints, believers, disciples, Christians. That is the nature of the church. What is the singular, unique characteristic of the church that's never been true of the people of God before? That is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Romans eight nine through eleven. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Spirit, 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 spirit. That is the unique uh, qualification, the unique characteristic of the church today. Um, Adam was a believer. He was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Eve was a believer. She was not indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Moses was a believer. He was indwelt by the Holy Spirit for certain periods of time to accomplish certain tasks, but it was not the indwelling that is permanent um, to be said of a a Christian. Um, If God makes his home with you, I'm going to preach that that verse today, the only time in the whole Bible that it says that the Father, Son, and the Spirit all make their home with you, um, if God makes his home with you, he's never moving out. Old Testament, that's different. Um, G- or, uh, David prayed in uh, Psalm 51. This is the only passage in, Bi- in the Bible I don't like to sing because there's not time to explain it. But in Psalm 51, take not your Holy Spirit from me. I don't like to sing it because unless I want to say, time out, stop the music, you know, keep playing for a minute while we explain this. What David was saying is, don't take away the blessing of your spirit over me as the king of Israel. Because I don't think any of us would say that Saul, uh, King Saul, was saved. I mean, he ends his life by going to consult a witch. Um, but the Holy Spirit came upon him as well at certain times. And so um, we're, we're unique in that. Uh, it's, uh, and I, I don't even know how to put it into words, how, how we ought to understand that uniqueness. Uh, That Look at at how many times the Spirit is said to dwell in us. Spirit, 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 Spirit. He's everywhere. Um, When when you read through the Old Testament, if you'd never read the Old Testament, or never read the New Testament, and you read through the Old Testament with just Old Testament eyes, you're going to see um, wisps of the Spirit of God here and there. And you might... If you had a pre- presupposition to go on, you might be able to construct the doctrine of the Trinity from the Old Testament. You, if you're careful, but you'd have to be looking for it. If you had never heard the doctrine of the Trinity, uh, I would be surprised if you could at all construct that doctrine from the Old Testament. You turn to Matthew 1 and all of a sudden the, the doctrine of the Trinity just explodes off the pages of the Bible uh it's the the change is phenomenal why because now we're intimately familiar with the spirit of god and i'm going to tell you how how uh later this morning so that's the unique characteristic and and um i i love this characteristic because it it does sets us apart and you know what you remember what one of the one of the functions of the church is it's to make israel jealous it's to make jews say why do they seem to love God more than I do? You talk to an Orthodox Jew, and they're, they're very, very staunch about their beliefs, um, but they don't have the love for God that you do. Why? Because they don't have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit unless they're saved. So there is a sense in which we're here to make Israel jealous and, um, and ultimately to turn them back to the Lord. Any questions uh, throughout this part here? All right. All right. Let's go on to, um, what is the ministry of the church? The main purpose of the church is to glorify God by proclaiming Christ. And that, that is really it. Uh, <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18 through 20, famously called the Great Commission, that we are to go into all the world, that we are to make disciples, that's proclaiming Christ, and we are to teach them to obey, and baptize them and teach them to obey. Um, I've said this before I don't think that the Great Commission should ever be restricted to evangelism. It is how we do church, not how we do evangelism um, it, it is the the scope of the church from the lost person all the way to the mature disciple that's that's what the church does Colossians one twenty eight of course is our um, is our main verse here him we proclaim warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ and that serves the function then of this mandate, which both of these come under the main purpose of the church, that we are the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of the truth. Um, we don't use this word anymore, buttress, or we don't use pillar even that much. But th- those things speak of a repository, a, a vault. We are the, we're the vault in which the truth of God is kept. So, just brainstorm with me. How are we to be the vault? How are we to be the repository for the truth of the gospel, for the doctrines of grace, for the, the, the inerrancy of scripture, all the things we believe in? David? The vault suggests that you are protected. You protect it? So there's a protective nature? Yeah. What else? How are we the vault? We keep it safe. keep it safe. And how do we do that? Preach. Yes. I was just going to point to that word. We proclaim. We, we, we say it over and over again. Um, back, in, back in the olden days, as they said when I was growing up, uh, when you wanted to teach your kids something that was a life and death issue, you repeated this thing to them over and over again. Don't walk into the corral without looking to see where the horses are. Repeat it back to me because you're going to die if you forget. And so we, we repeat the truth. We repeat the gospel. Um, I want some nuance, some slice, some piece of the gospel of Christ in everything I ever say. And you should want to hear it because it's implanting itself in your heart. You're passing it on to your children, to your neighbors, and so forth, and it doesn't change. It should stay the same. Um, it, it should it should remain as is. So that's how we, we are. We're the vault of the truth, and we do that by um, sticking to our doctrinal statement. We do that by... Um, having very high standards for who gets to teach. That's why, that's why if you're going to teach in this church, you must be a member because you've signed off on the doctrinal statement that you're either going to abide by it or you're at least not going to disagree openly. Um, so we, we guard the truth. So all those, all those pictures you gave is, is very accurate. Now, I want to pay a little bit of attention to Colossians 128. I am particularly drawn to this. Um, it is our motto in our church. I want to show you how Colossians 128 works itself out. Uh, all you have to do is walk out in the hall behind us and you'll see this up there as well. It works itself out in three ways. Um, exaltation. This is the ministry of the church. Uh, first and foremost, we are called to gather for corporate worship. Um, I'm always amused when unbelievers call upon churches to carry out their agendas. That, that is the most inane thing in the world. Um, They have no right to do so. They have no idea what they're talking about. And they picture churches, and unfortunately, a lot of churches picture themselves as social service agencies. That that we gather together and we pool our money so that we can go solve the homeless problem. Um, There's only one city in the United States right now adequately sort of trying to do that, and that's San Diego. Uh, It's going crazy everywhere else, and yet they point to the churches and say, you should solve this. It's not our job to solve uh, social ills it's our job to proclaim the gospel and part of that is that and this is hard for people to stomach because they have a preconceived notion that the church is all about evangelism you know this we're not to evangelism yet the church is first and foremost about exaltation <clears throat> this is why i don't preach i don't preach to unbelievers i preach to believers And we remind you of the gospel, which is able to save the unbeliever as well. And obviously, I do address the unbeliever. And and I would say 90% of the people that have gotten saved at Grace have, have done so because they heard a sermon. And that's the way it ought to be. But we can't ever let this go. Corporate worship is the numero uno thing that we do. We're starting a Spanish ministry, so I'm practicing now. So that's the number one thing we do. Oh, this is recorded. I always forget about that. That, 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 that's, that's everything. That's everything. That's why I don't have a problem asking a young mommy to carry her crying baby out. Because uh, the people around her need to worship more than baby needs to be latched on mom. They'll be fine. Um, no child yet has ever grown up saying, you know, I feel really emotionally damaged because my mother carried me out when I was one month old from the church service. I could have heard the gospel. I could have been the youngest Christian in the history of the world. <laughs> Um, that's why we that's why and and I'm not going to hope not step on any any toes that's why I abhor the sight of somebody in a worship service with a latte you wouldn't go to the throne room of God with your coffee Um, and I'm not going to be legalistic about it but I will say legalism says we're going to please God by doing things but we will make rules because we're allowed to do that in the church don't do that and help others around you just say look If you need coffee, have some beforehand. But I would never come into the sapphire-filled, rainbow-filled throne of God saying, before I go in, I just, I got to get this espresso. I'm just dying right now. We'd never do that. Um, Those are just little things. But you see how that that works itself in your attitude? How do you view worship? It is the most important thing we do. Somebody says, well, I can worship at home. Uh, That's not the emphasis in Scripture. Yes, you can, but that is not the emphasis. It is on corporate worship. And then we're exaltation in lifestyle worship as well. We worship in obedience. Um, <clears throat> if you neglect corporate worship, your lifestyle worship will fail. It will fail because we need to gather together. I, I don't think once a week is enough, to be honest with you. I would love to have lived in... in. Uh, calvin's day john calvin had a practice that every other week he preached three nights a week plus three times on sunday then the next week he would study all week for the big week so basically he put on a bible conference every other week um if if there was a way for us to do that and people would come i would do that in a minute i would absolutely do that because it is our corporate worship that drives our lifestyle worship you show me somebody who uh, is in my office or Darren's office and, and pieces of their lives are falling apart because of disobedience. And I will show you somebody who's not in church, who's not going to a small group, who's not coming to Sunday school. The two go hand in hand. You cannot separate them. You can't. So you know what the first assignment we usually give to somebody in counseling is you will be in church every time the doors are open because that alone will begin to help you. And then, of course, the preaching and teaching of God's word. This is, this is the exaltation of of god second timothy 4 2 um we're to preach the word uh teaching imparts the knowledge of god's word um preaching imparts the knowledge of god's word with the authoritative expectation of an applied response um <clears throat> somebody asked me just a couple weeks ago why do you get so worked up when you preach i actually don't know the answer to that question so i had to think about it for a minute. I think mostly it's because we're dull and we're thick and we're deaf. And when truth is presented, if it's presented as if it doesn't matter, then it won't matter. It needs to be presented as if it's the most important thing in the world, which it happens to be. Um, It happens to be the most important thing ever. So preaching and teaching, it should change your life as you're hearing it and as you're applying it. I, I think that there is a lot to be said for the fact that preaching is an event in and of itself. Something is happening at that moment, and that's that's one of the reasons I love it because something's happening to me. Um, one guy who is a, who's a pastor, he's also a a Ph.D. biologist. But years ago he he did a he did a study on the effort expended to preach a lively sermon. And he determined that physiologically it is, it is worth nearly six hours of manual labor because there is an effort expended. Um, there's an emotional effort. That, like, it's like nothing else you can ever experience um, because it's changing people. The Spirit of God is working and is moving. And um, so you, you, you're changed as you hear it. You're changed as you apply it. So it's an act of worship to preach and teach, and it's an act of worship to listen and to apply. We're all worshiping together, and that's, that's a glorious thing. So exaltation, I, I'm spending a little time on that because I hope you'll just chew on that a little bit. I'll, I hope you'll go home and elevate your own thinking about corporate worship, about exaltation. Um, how, how important do you make it? You know, uh, People who will never be late to work a day in their life can't get to church on time. It's just, you know, your actions speak louder than words. Nobody in this room, of course. You're all uh, uh, right here. And I do understand when you have small children, that's like the judgment of God. Uh, uh, every Sunday, something's going to happen. Look, we're on time. Bleh. You know, somebody throws up. It always happens. So you just laugh your way through it. But, but your, your attitude was to be ready, right? You know, that was where your heart was. So uh, those of you who are, who are leaders in your family... Um, elevate the exaltation aspect of the church in your own family. Um, Pray with them the night before. Um, The last thing in our family that we do on Saturday night, this isn't because I'm a pastor, it's because I'm a Christian. The last thing we do on Saturday night is we we begin preparing our hearts for the Lord's day um, in two ways. We pray and then we we find out, does everybody have their clothes set out? Does everybody have their plan for breakfast? Does everybody know what time we're getting up? Does everybody know what time we're leaving? And so forth, because we want to be ready. Um, we're, we're going to meet with God. And so I, I want to be ready, and I want you to as well. So let's, let's uh, keep our eyes on the exaltation portion. But as we're exalting the Lord, we're also to be equipping. There's a practical component here. Equipping includes the preaching and teaching of God's word. Um, when somebody says, well, our, our church is, is light on preaching and heavy on discipleship, well, they miss the boat. Because preaching and teaching is the main way we disciple. Uh, you ought to be able to, if all you can do, and sometimes and we have people like this, and that's great. If all you can do is listen to every sermon that's ever put out from Grace Bible Church, you will grow in your faith. You will learn the Bible. And that's how you're, that's how you're meant to do it. Um, now, we want, to, we want to add to that any way we can. Thus, we're doing BTI, and uh, this is our third time through BTI and so forth. But the reason to be equipped is for the works of service to build up the body of Christ. Uh, I, I'm, I'm just curious, um, in all honesty, how many of you here at any time in your Christian life have ever had a conversation with something and knowledge that you learned came out that you weren't even aware that you had really fully processed? Yes. Isn't that fun? Isn't that beautiful? You're like... Where's this coming from? This is really good. Hang on, let me record this before I tell you this. That's the equipping part. That's the equipping part. Um, that's the equipping part. Uh, some people say, uh, and, and I like to do this, some people say you should preach an outline that's easy for people to remember. I preach 110 times a year. Nobody on earth remembers every outline I ever preached. But what it does is it makes it easier for you to uh, inculcate that information right then. It gets stored away for the Holy Spirit to pull out at the right time. Um, I can think of two sermons in my whole life. I can still remember the outline. Um, I always It's always kind of fun when somebody comes up to me. I met somebody at Shepherds Conference and said, I listened to a message you preached eight months ago, and your third point really blessed me. <laughs> I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> what was I preaching, and what was the third point? Because I, I don't even remember. But that was the Holy Spirit driving that home. And, it, and, and trust me, he's capable of organizing all that information for you to use at the right time. And in ways that would astound you. So we are to be equipped um, for works of service. We're also to be equipped to edify and build one another up. Uh, I'm going to tell this story tonight. I don't want to give it all away. But it always makes me sad to hear a a professing believer in Christ who I think genuinely is seeking after God but has no language with which to express that seeking. No, No language to describe God. Um, No language to say, um, here's how God is faithful. They just say things like, you know, God is so good and God was really there and God was with me. But they don't have anything to say because they haven't been taught. They don't have a language. This is why we have the book of Psalms. Psalms is 150 different ways to praise God and to have a language with which to speak to him. And so by being equipped, you can edify and build one another up. You are capable. As you're s- steeped in the word of God, you're capable when when you see a fellow believer that's just being destroyed by life, you're capable of sitting down and saying, "All right, I love you. Let's review the truth. Let's go through the truth. Let's think of 10 things that are true about God in this situation." Number 1, God is sovereign. Oh, you're so well taught. Praise the Lord for that. Number 2, you are not. Number 3, god ordains trials your trial is not from the devil um, unless god is using the devil but uh, number four and you can begin to rehearse the truth that's what you do with somebody who's hurting rehearse the truth as you put your arm around them and and love on them so we're to edify and build one another up or uh, when, when somebody is sinning in a certain way you need to have ammo to say you know does this match with what the Lord would call you to do? Um, you, know, you, you say that you have refused to forgive your mother. Uh, does that match with Ephesians 4 31 and 32, which says to forgive one another, loving one another as God in Christ forgave you? Does it fit? So that's, so that's why we equip, is so you can counsel one another. And then, of course, there's fellowship and, and body life. I, I just think the best fellowship in the world is based on the knowledge of God's word. I, I really do not based on the fact that we had a softball game. We're having one Monday night, but that's a whole different issue, the, the youth group is. Um, that's fun, but that doesn't create true Christian fellowship. That's just the outworking of Christian fellowship. I'd rather play softball with Christians because they don't get mad when I hit the home run over their heads. Um, and I don't get mad when they hit me in the head. That happened once. Um, so we, we fellowship because we're equipped. Uh, this is the best way to fellowship I have seen you in this class, I've seen other classes in BTI literally um, get together after church or go have lunch or something just to talk about what they learned. Oh, that's fellowship. That, there's nothing like it. So we live out Colossians 128 through exaltation, equipping, and then finally evangelism. I, honestly, I think, this is, I think this is just the natural outworking of exaltation and equipping We are proclaiming the gospel in the church gathering. First of all, uh, Paul told Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. What is the context? The context, he just said three verses earlier, is preach the word. Do the work of an evangelist. Don't neglect the gospel. Um, Know that in any gathering with more than uh, people that you personally know, every one of their testimonies, there probably is an unbeliever or two or five or ten. And I always keep that in my mind. I never preach, assuming that everybody in the room is a believer. I never do, because uh, what did Jesus say he would grow up with the wheat it 's hairs they 're right that 's right and they're they 're in our church, and we we preach to them and that 's okay. Um, <clears throat> we proclaim the gospel not only in the church but we proclaim the gospel in the world matthew twenty eight I want to clarify this. I've, I've done some reading on this and just thinking about it. Um, Matthew 28, go therefore into all the world. <clears throat> I think that uh, the modern missions movement uh, obviously is phenomenal and amazing, but I think that there has been a, a uh, push away from uh, proclaiming the gospel in the church and separating that from proclaiming the gospel in the world what do I mean by that? What I mean is that there's been a push away from what true evangelism is. True evangelism in the the world is church planting. It is is planting a little bitty church in which to proclaim the gospel. Uh, And that's, that's, that's what the most effective evangelism is. And how do I know it's most effective? Because that's what Paul did. He went and preached in the synagogues until he gathered a few people who believed and who would keep coming back to listen to him. That gathering then became the magnet for other people to come. Um, when somebody says, you know, the church is doing a terrible job of evangelism, time out, the church is the only group on earth evangelizing. The only group. Well, what about parachurch organizations? Well, if they're operating outside the church, if they're Christians, they're still part of the church. And, and so, so uh, there's, there's been this idea that Yeah, proclaiming the gospel through the church is kind of nice, but we're going to do the really exciting stuff and go outside the church. We're going to go into the world. Well, that's great. Go into the world and plant a church. Um, and, And then you have the problem of the person who's had six whole months of Bible training being sent halfway around the world to proclaim the gospel. They can't proclaim the gospel effectively until they can run a church successfully. Does that make sense? That, that's, that's, so we, we want to keep these connected. The church and evangelism, they, they are connected. Um, <clears throat> one of my favorite stories in the world is a little group, a little island in the, in, in the um, South, South Pacific, little people called the Taliabu. And uh, it was a TMS graduate and, and a compatriot and both their wives, four of them, that went to this little island they had literally never seen a white person before and it took them three years to become friends to learn the language both the wives were artists Um, during that three-year period the the wives were working on murals to explain the whole bible they were they were drawing them out stacks of them and because the taliabu had no historical context they you couldn't just say um, come to faith in jesus That, that had no context for them so they during this time, they literally built a, a hall. It was, it was an outdoor hall sort of a thing that um, these four white people were going to tell them the story of what happens to all the dead relatives that they had stacked in their little huts. Because that's what they would do. Somebody dies. They put them on a the shelf up high. And the reason they did that was because they didn't know what happens to dead people. And that was their most fearful thing. And they came and said, we have the answer. We know who made you. And we're going to tell you. And so it's it's an amazing story. What they did was they they prepared for three years, learning the language, trying to figure out theological words in in their language and making a list of them. Then they began in Genesis 1. And they started telling the story of the Bible, getting all the way up. Uh, The first person that they think got saved was when they were telling the story of Passover and how this is looking ahead to a Passover lamb. And this old man who was sick and dying, Didn't know the name of Jesus yet, but he said, I've put my faith in my Passover lamb. Um, (laughs) So they kept doing this, and eventually they left. And you you know what they left behind? They left nine qualified elders. They left a hymnal in their language, and they left enough scripture in their language that they could continue teaching and preaching. They left a church behind. That's evangelism. That is evangelism. Uh, Amazing story. I I know that guy. His name is uh, uh, Stephen. uh, I can't remember his last name all of a sudden. I I met him a few years ago. If you talk to him, he's not this flaming, flamboyant missionary type. He's just kind of a a shy preacher. They just went and proclaimed. That's evangelism. And that's not going to happen. I said, isn't that cool that, that that happened? He said, it's a one in a million. I know, but it is the model for evangelism. And if you ask him today, what's evangelism? He would say, it is planting a church. And don't ever tell me it's anything else. And whew, you know, that's one guy I won't argue with on that because he he has the he has the story to back it. So uh, have I made my point? I hope I have. So that's why we love the church. Bring, bring the unbelievers to church. Uh, if we ever have a chance to plant another church 15 miles away, let's do it. Let's do it. We'll send a few of you that we don't like over to that one. <laughs> and... Uh, well, that, that's what usually happens. That's how that works. All right, let's, let's polish this part off. This is, that's right. But I, I, I take minimal responsibility for this. Um, preaching and teaching of Scripture covers all three aspects of exaltation, equipping, and evangelism. And so our conclusion is the preached Word of God is the central activity of worship, growth, and gospel proclamation. It has to be it just has to be once you once you denigrate preaching then you have kind of lost your way uh, very quickly you can just take a picture of this church ministries as outlined in acts two forty two through 47 still holds true today teaching fellowship worship service and evangelism uh, it kind of sounds like five aspects of a, of a church-wide ministry doesn't it that, that would be a great way to organize um, a local church uh, do you have gifts of teaching or are you a are you a a fellowshipy type person to help that or are, are you somebody you can help in worship in service and evangelism so I want to take um, I want to just start this topic because it's it's a, it's a big one and it might engender some discussion so i'll start this topic and then next week we'll finish this up. Um, I hope it's okay with you that we're slowing this down for ecclesiology but I really just I, I want to get into this next week we'll finish up ecclesiology and uh, then we'll do 1st and 2nd Thessalonians then we'll come back to ecclesiology or we'll finish that first lesson. Here's a topic I want to get started and that is church discipline and restoration. Um, besides Grace Bible Church, how many of you have ever been involved in a church that you have witnessed actually practice church discipline? Okay, that's, that's more than I anticipated. Um, uh, how many of you... Leave your hands back up. Put your hands, leave them up if you believe it was practiced biblically and in a healthy fashion. I rest my case. It's fewer, right? It's fewer. So um, we have lost our way to a certain degree in that the, the old reformers, they would say, if you're not practicing church discipline, you're not a church. Um, you're, you're just pandering to, pandering to society this has been neglected um i think this is the more ignored area of church life and the most ignored command of christ in the modern evangelical church i think it is the most ignored command of christ oh we'll we'll do love your neighbor all day long but um uh confront somebody on their sin oh that's just that's so unfriendly um that that's hard to do scriptural support is huge Hebrews 12, 1 through 14, discipline is a positive thing. God disciplines all whom he loves. And we've said this before. If you're married, you've been under church disciplines. You've been to step one 100,000 times, right? That's, it's good. It's supposed to be that way. Um, 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 11, you disfellowship the, the one who is habitually sexually immoral. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6-15, the one who refuses to acknowledge the authority of Scripture and causes trouble with idleness and gossip should be disciplined. By the way, there's a new flavor of refusing to acknowledge the authority of Scripture, and that is elevating theology over the Bible. That's the newest flavor. That's the new Gnosticism. That's the new, my knowledge is better than your knowledge because I've read more books than you have. That's the new Gnosticism. I believe there will be a day at Grace Bible Church when we discipline somebody for arrogance because they're they're quoting Calvin more than they're quoting the Bible. I believe that day is coming. Um, so that's so we so we uh, watch out for that. First Timothy one, we ferret out false teachers. Um, <clears throat> if if uh, if I found out somebody was teaching one of our Sunday school classes and they're proclaiming the wrong gospel, they're done. They're done. We'll first talk to them about it. If they say no, I'm going to teach what I want, then they're out the door. Um, and we don't go through four steps on that, by the way. Mm-hmm. Leadership has the ability and the right to say you're refusing to stop teaching bad stuff. Don't come back, and just just stop. And I think you would all want it that way. First um, Timothy 19 and twenty, a purified leadership as well. That if you have leaders that won't do what is biblical in the church, then you are to you're to call them out on it. Titus 3, 9 through 11, you ferret out those who cause division, those who want to argue, those who, who continue to cause strife in the church. Um, that's another one. Uh, actually, this is a two-step and you're out. Uh, I can make a case for a one-step church discipline, two-step, three-step, and four-step. It just depends on the, on the case and on the situation. So you ferret out those who cause division. And in Matthew 18, 15 and following, this is the, the kind of classic that we look to the most, giving the opportunity for repentance to the unrepentant um, in habitual sin. Uh, you balance that, of course, with Jesus' command that uh, if somebody comes to you seven times in a day saying, I repent, what do you do? You forgive them. And you do that all day. If somebody comes to you and says, I know you've called me out on this sin, but I'm not going to do anything about it, then that's where you, you, you become, uh, have a problem. So we'll continue on this um, next time, but we just I just want your brain thinking on this because we want a pure church. A a, a church that just is open arms to anybody who wants to come in and, and impact the children, anybody else. It's not a church.